Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, if we were sitting in a planetarium looking up at a graphic representation or presentation of the configuration of the stars on Tishri the 1st, that is on the Jewish calendar, it would have been September the 11th, Yom Teruah, 3 BC. We might see Revelation 12.1 depicted above us. Looking up what you would have seen and what we can go back now, thanks to computer programs, and look at the star pattern on that night, you could see a woman, Virgo, clothed with the sun, that is the sun directly at Virgo's heart, and directly above Virgo's head, again, on this particular date, like a crown, were the 12 stars of the constellation Coma Berenices. The Alpha Star of the Coma Berenice is called Diadem. Coma itself means desired one. So the 12 stars of the desired one, with the primary star being the Diadem hovering there above Virgo, clothed with the sun, kind of makes you wonder when you read this if John was seeing stars. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. The starry constellations. Was this in fact a revelation in the heavens of the birth of Christ? At the time of the birth of Christ? Perhaps. Maybe. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, there is no speech, David writes, nor are there words, their voice is not heard, their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Indication. The stars are to teach. The stars do show us something. The stars can be beneficial. I mean, think about it this way. If you're God, thankfully none of you are, but if you were and you were trying to get a message into time, how would you do it? You're an extraterrestrial being by definition. How do you get your message to terrestrial beings who are limited by space, time, and dimension when you are not? And I think God does it different ways. And the Bible indicates, even with the stars. Now, I'm not getting all into astrology and stargazing and do the stars tell my future. And I think I've told you before, the very uh, zodiac that people use today is based on the Babylonian system. And the star patterns have changed since then, so it's completely wrong anyway. I'm not suggesting that, but what I'm saying is God will use what He can to get messages across. I think natural disasters, so-called. Sometimes God's getting a message out. In our own personal lives, difficulty, financial struggle, personal pain, hardship, 
Sometimes it is the Lord seeking to get our attention and draw us back to Him. There's a word used just one time in all the Bible. We've actually talked about it back in 2017. We had a discussion, a conversation where we looked at Revelation 12. And that word engages an entire sphere of Jewish thought related to the stars. Job chapter 30, verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? Constellation is the word Maserot. The Maserot. Stars and the patterns and the signs in the sky. And so there's a lot of Jewish thought that goes into looking at and considering the Maserot and what it teaches, what it tells us. We know that the, the Magi, those wise men, were men who studied the stars. They were watching the stars. They were looking for certain patterns. And some of that led them as they came into Israel looking for Messiah. They had seen His star in the heavens. Well, constellation, Maserot. You know what the Yiddish word is for that? It's Mazalot. Which you've heard the phrase Mazeltov. That's where it comes from. Mazeltov. Mazeltov literally means good constellations. Or good luck to you. But a word of caution regarding the stars. And before we go any further in Revelation 12... Isaiah 47, verse 13, in rebuke of Babylon, which is where the Zodiac comes from, God says, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. Don't think that you're going to find the answer in the stars. See, the problem with focusing on the heavens rather than on their maker is that you begin to see stars instead of the Savior. And we are to look to the Savior. We're to look to Jesus. We're to learn from Jesus and His Word. John is doing that. In Revelation 12, John is still looking to the Savior. Remember that this is still the revelation of Jesus Christ. And God hung the stars. Indeed, He fashioned all the earth to give revelation of Himself. That's the point of all that we see of what's around us, of what we experience in this life, that we might have revelation of God, of His nature, of His goodness, of His being. To get revelation, not the other way around. God didn't give revelation to increase discombobulation. It's a good word. But isn't it interesting that that's exactly what false religions and cults do? They increase the mystery The further in you go, the more confusing it gets. The more convoluted. And that's what the devil does. He mystifies, perplexes, confounds. And people get into that place of mystery and they go, Ooh, I don't understand. There must be something here. When there's nothing, God is a God of revelation. God is a God who wants to unveil. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all men, that is all anthropos, which is all people, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants truth for you. He wants knowledge for me. He wants to open the doors and bring us in. So, as we go forward in Revelation 12, don't go backward. 
That is, let's not go from the explicit to the enigmatic. Or from that which is made known to the mysterious. This is, remember, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why this great sign in the heavens? What's going on here? Go back to verse 1 of the revelation. Let's just start over. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. In the Greek there, in that sentence, it's esemenon. And it means signified. He, he gave it to signify what is going to take place. To signify. It comes from the root word simeon, which is sign. He signed it so we would understand it. That is, right from the beginning of the revelation, we realize that while John is being very straightforward and we take this revelation literally, he also uses signs to communicate. He signals things. John Walvoord in his commentary says, Revelation chapter 12 is the most symbolic chapter in the Bible's most symbolic book. Now I know someone would say, okay, but Rick, you're saying avoid being symbolic. No, I I didn't say that. What I've been saying is don't get all hung up in symbolism. Don't try to symbolize something that is literal. But there are symbols in the Revelation. There are metaphors. There are similes all over the place. And one method that God uses to develop faith in us is signs. Now, as we noted months ago at the start of the Revelation, when there are symbols, when there are similes or allegories or metaphors, John always tells you. You can know that's what's going on. And that's how he begins the chapter. A great sign appeared in the heavens. So this here is a symbol. It's the second word of the first verse of chapter 12. Simeon, sign. A great sign appears. So you might say, what's the third word? Not in the Greek. Sign is the second word. And then the third word would be what's translated great, which is literally mega. But there's another word that precedes both of these. A little word that is highly significant. And it's the word, get this, Kai. If you're taking notes, you can transliterate it. K-A-I. Kai. Kai in the Greek is the word and. And a mega sign. Kai Simeon Mega. And a mega sign. And a great sign. You don't start a new section with and. When you use the word and, you're tying into what came from a previous section. So we better look back. Verse 19 of chapter 11. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm, and a great sign appeared. So we're right in the flow of what we were talking about in chapter 11, verse 19. Here's what's happening. John's there. He sees heaven opened. And he sees the Ark of His Covenant in the temple opened there in heaven. And he sees a mega sign. So this is all happening at once. And that's important because some suggest, they look at this and they say, well, 
verse 19 of chapter 11 really ought to go with verse 1 of chapter 12. The chapter 11 should end after verse 18 and verse 19 should be picking up a new section. Only problem is if you read this, verse 19 also begins with and. So we got to go and back further to verse 18. Oh, well that begins with and. What I'm saying to you is from verse 15 in chapter 11 all the way through verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. This is one section. This is all connected. This is all simultaneous. This is all happening together. So you've got the seventh trumpet sounding. We're looking at the third woe taking place. And I'm telling you that verse 19 of the temple of God in heaven being opened in the Ark of His Covenant connects the seventh trumpet, the third woe, all that's taking place at the end of chapter 11 connects it with the great sign. What does that matter? What does that mean? It means that the coronation of chapter 11 is tied to the panoramic view that we are about to see. Keep that in mind. It's important. Now, looking back to chapter 11, I want to answer something before we go any further. A question that we never did answer this last week. The question is, what's the third woe? And more than that, if you would read this and you read chapter 11. Remember, we talked about the first woe is the blowing of the fifth trumpet. You can read about that in chapter 9. The second woe, the second woe is the blowing of the sixth trumpet. So the fifth trumpet is blown. Go ahead and look back. Chapter 9, that's the first woe. And the fifth trumpet is blown. The bottomless pit is open, right? The abyss is opened and the demon locusts flow out. There's the first woe. The second woe is the second half of chapter 9 when there are four killer angels loosed from the Euphrates. The sixth trumpet is blown. The second woe begins. Four killer angels and a 200 million rider army of demonic riders comes riding out and killing starts taking place everywhere. That's the second woe. And it should be. I mean, I read chapter 9 and I go, whoa, whoa. So there's two woes right in a row. And then we come to the third woe, which we know begins because at the end of chapter 11, look at this verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then the seventh angel sounded. Fifth trumpet, first woe. Sixth trumpet, second woe. Seventh trumpet, third woe. But when you read what happens with the seventh trumpet, Verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. He will reign forever and ever. Twenty-four elders who sit on the thrones before God fall on their faces. They worship God. We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty. There's a worship service going on. Woe? I get the first two woes. This doesn't seem like a woe. In fact, as we talked about last Wednesday night, it is a kingdom coronation. Right? How is a kingdom coronation a third woe? It should be a celebration. As we read in verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that a good thing? Why would that be a woe? Well, it's not a woe for citizens of the kingdom. It's not a woe for those who are longing for the kingdom to come. But, 
Proverbs chapter 10, verse 24 tells us what the wicked fears will come upon him. But the desire of the righteous will be granted. Hey, the coming kingdom is the desire of the righteous. But for the nations rejecting Christ, the coming kingdom is a woe. The blowing of the seventh trumpet results in the coming kingdom, but also results in lightning and thunder and an earthquake and a hailstorm on earth. Woe. And the third woe now heralds the coming of the great tribulation. Woe. But, but there's more. This coming kingdom is a great woe to a world that is victimized, brutalized, and tyrannized the woman of the great sign. Because the kingdom that was promised to her has now come. Let me just read to you this. This is Isaiah chapter 17, verse 12. Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumble of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. At evening time, behold, there is terror before morning. They are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. Isaiah is writing about those who plunder us. Who is the us he's talking about? Israel. Israel. Who is the woman? Israel is the woman of the mega sign. Get this? It is huge. Israel is the mega sign, the great sign. In verse 1 of chapter 12, unquestionably Israel. We see the kingdom come. We see the open temple. We look up, we see the ark of his covenant. And so it's no surprise that we should see at this point as well, the woman Israel to whom the kingdom was promised. Isaiah 9, 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The woman is Israel. There are four women listed in the revelation. Two marvelous, wonderful women. And two bad eggs. A couple of wicked women. There's in Revelation 2 verse 20, Jezebel. Then here in Revelation 12, there is the woman, Israel. In Revelation 17, there is the great harlot, the woman who rides the beast. And then finally, in chapter 19 verse 7, the bride. The bride. Two women representing evil and wickedness in the world and two women representing Israel and the church. Israel and the church. Furthermore, as we enter into this uh, continuing parenthetical section, still on pause at the midpoint of the tribulation, we're going to see and understand and learn more about seven identifiable personas. Seven. 
First off is the woman, Israel, from Joseph to Jesus. From Joseph to Jesus. I'll explain that, the woman. Secondly, we will see the dragon from fall down to throw down. Then we will see the child, Jesus, from birth to ascension. We'll see number four in verse seven, the archangel, Michael. We will see in verse 6 and then again in verses 13 through 17. And we're probably not even going to get there until next week. In fact, I guarantee we won't. We'll see the woman Israel again. I'm counting that as another characterization or persona because she's now in a different place. Whereas tonight we look at the woman Israel from Joseph to Jesus. At that point, it's the woman Israel in the great tribulation. And then number six, in chapter 13, first half of the chapter, we'll read about the beast from the sea, that is, Antichrist. We will finally get some ideas and understanding of his character, of his nature. And then the last half of chapter 13, the seventh persona is the beast from the land, which is the false prophet. What's interesting in all of this is what some have called the unholy trinity. You know, there's the Trinity, there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, Satan, ever the counterfeiter, tries to do the same. You've got Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So an unholy Trinity emerges as we study these things. Back to verse 1 of chapter 12, however. How do we know with certainty that the woman is Israel? Read it again. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. There are all kinds of bogus interpretations of who the woman is. From cultish bizarreties, even to evangelical Christians who suppose that the woman is the church. The woman is not the church. In fact... The fact that she's going to be seen in the Great Tribulation should confirm for us that she can't be the church because the church is not in the Tribulation. The fact that the woman goes through the Tribulation at a time yet future should confirm for us that the Catholic perspective is incorrect, that the woman is not married. You can see entire paintings of that are supposed to be of the Virgin Mary with 12 stars above her head, standing on sun and moon, And they take that from Revelation 12, verse 1, and they say, oh, well, that's the Virgin Mary. No, it's not. Can't be. Not with the placement of this woman. We have to ask the question, not do we, what do we think she is, or what does our tradition encourage us to believe this woman to be? We ask the question, what does the Word tell us? What does the best commentary on Scripture tell us? And the best commentary is Scripture. So turn back to Genesis 37. In your Bibles, Genesis 37. And this is why I said the woman is Israel from Joseph to Jesus. Because in Genesis 37, Joseph, young Joseph, is having a dream. And it's a dream that gets him into trouble. It's actually the second dream that gets him into trouble. We'll look at the first one. If you pick it up in verse 5. Already Joseph's brothers are jealous of him because he got the really cool coat. Members only jacket from his dad. I'm out of the 80s. Members only was cool back then. So in the fifth verse of Genesis 37, 
Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that a great dream? (laughs) And his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now you would think Joseph would learn at this point just to clam up. But he had still another dream, verse 9, and related it to his brothers. And he said, lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Sun and the moon and the eleven stars. He related it to his father and to his brothers. Then his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? And listen to Jacob's interpretation and understanding of the dream. He says, Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Joseph's dream. Listen to Revelation 12.1 again. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. It's Joseph's dream. The woman is Israel. Israel in Joseph's dream, sun and moon would be Jacob and Rachel and the stars would be the sons of Israel. And so now John is relating this And I'm telling you that the mega sign that John sees in the heavens is the same one Joseph saw in his dream. Same sign. And if you know the continuing story of Joseph, you know that his family did bow down before him in Egypt. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you might recognize the fact that Rachel was dead before that. So his mother wasn't there bowing down. Well, she had already died. They they buried her on the way to to Bethlehem. So, So what's the deal there? It was a dream that was partially fulfilled in Joseph's family coming under authority. His authority. But the dream as given is fully realized in the mega sign. A sign that is far bigger than constellations. Now, I find the constellations interesting. As I told you, back in 2017, in the fall, we did some study on this because people were freaking out. This is it! This is the rapture of the church. We know the day and we know the hour. And we're all still here. But we did teaching on it. We talked about it. We looked at the Maserot, the signs. We considered those things, and it is fascinating. In fact, in 2017, in the month of Tishri, right there at the, on, the, on Yom Teruah, or right around it, there was this pattern, this Revelation 12 pattern was seen in the constellations. Fascinating, interesting. Is the Lord trying to get our attention? Well, He certainly got the attention of the church that year, I can tell you. Sadly, in two years since, it's waned incredibly, and people really aren't paying a whole lot of attention anymore. Two things right now are on the decline in the church. Eschatology, that is the study of the end times, and support for Israel. And you know what? The two often, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say always go hand in hand. The more you study and are aware of what the Bible teaches about the end times, the more you love Israel. 
The more you love Israel, the more interested you are in what the Bible has to say about the end times. The two go hand in hand. Well, the great sign, the mega sign, is Israel. And that must be understood. But you might ask, why is it a mega sign? What is it that makes it so great? Was it just cosmologically big in John's view? Hey, through history, people have failed to understand how truly big this sign really is. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. Now I will tell you, I have, I shared this with our staff this morning, I have been accused over the years of talking about Israel too much. I'm not sure how you can get away from it when you're teaching in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you're teaching through the Hebrew Scriptures, you're going to talk about Israel. But even getting on into the New Testament, talking about Israel all the time. And we've taken a number of trips to Israel. In fact, we keep going back. That's kind of a thing. The Bridge Fellowship, we go to Israel every other year. Why? I mean, what, such a big expense and, and such a, a big amount of time that you take going to Israel. What's the deal with Israel? Israel is a mega sign. In fact, I would submit to you that Israel is perhaps outside of Scripture. And outside of the work of the Holy Spirit Himself, Israel is the biggest sign God ever gave us in all history. Uh, Genesis, sorry, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, listen, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And one man, Abraham. Now people read that, and some have said, okay, but that could be, that blessing could be through Jews and Muslims, right? Because Abraham had Isaac and he had Ishmael, and through Isaac comes the Jewish people, and through Ishmael comes the Arabic and the Muslim people. So, so it, could, it could be through both, you know, a couple of the world religions. You know what? That's exactly what Abraham thought at first, too. That it's Isaac and Ishmael. In fact, skip on to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. She goes from princess to queen in one verse. Call her queenie. You know, honor her. And I will bless her, verse 16. And indeed, I will give you a son by her, And then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, and kings of people will come from her. She's in her 90s. 90s. Are you with me? I'm going to make her a mama. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Well, yeah, she's in her 90s. And he said in his heart... Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let's go the Muslim route. 
<laughs> now, Islam didn't come along for you know 600 years after Jesus. So 2,600 years after Abraham. So but let's not muddy the waters. Let's go the Ishmael route, Abraham says. Because have you seen Sarah? And you want her to be a mother? So look, look, we have a son, Ishmael, who was a son of sinful choice. Right? A son of a decision that Abraham made, not that God had declared he should do. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19, but God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which, if you don't know, means laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. If you skip ahead to Genesis 21.12, you will see just one line. It says, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. So it's narrowing down here. I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you, Abraham. But now it's not just through Abraham. It's through Abraham, through Isaac. All the nations will be blessed. Okay, so Abraham, through Isaac, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. So Jacob and Esau, well that's fine too, because Jacob is the Jews, and Esau is the Edomites, so another strain of Arab peoples. Isn't that how it works? Genesis 28. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. Behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, he's talking to Jacob, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants, Jacob, will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants, or in your seed, literally, note that, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is a big sign. Israel is the mega sign. I know of no one else in all of history who was told through your seed all the world will be blessed. By the way, hint, the seed is Jesus who comes through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right down the line. But Israel is the mega sign. Israel! Now if we weren't reading scripture right now, and I told you that, and we looked at the facts out before us, it would be a weird thing to say. Israel's the mega sign. Israel? The Jewish people? The Jewish people in the world today number about 15 million total. That's both in the land of Israel and living everywhere else. Largest population of Jewish people is in Israel. Second largest, New York City. But they're scattered throughout the world to the number of 15 million. 15 million people out of 7.5 billion of the earth's population. You know what the percent is? It's less than two-tenths of a percent. 
less than two-tenths of a percent is the mega sign. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. You know what else doesn't make any sense? When you look at the insignificance of the number, and yet no other group of people in history has had the impact and the blessing on humanity that the people of Israel have had. It is absolutely unparalleled. The blessings in technology and medicine and arts and science and education. And I could go on and on talking about all the ways that Israel has blessed the world and the blessing has come through the people of Israel. It's, it's uncanny that all the world blessed by two-tenths of a percent. And what's even weirder is that on top of all of that, how do you explain the blessing coming from this insignificant group of people, at least in terms of numbers, and all the anti-Semitism in the world? It doesn't make sense. Anti-Semitism doesn't make sense. The number is too small to be a threat. And yet out of this tiny little non-threatening number, you've got a remarkable blessing that keeps coming out one way or the other. A constant blessing that comes from and through and by the people of Israel. And yet for all of that, the world hates them. Anti-Semitism does not make sense. It cannot be explained outside of the Bible. Outside of the Bible. But the Bible gives us the perfect explanation. In fact, in our study tonight, we see it. Go back to Revelation chapter 12 in verse 1. So a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Multiple times in the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel is compared to a woman in labor. I started listing them out. I'll just give you a couple of verses, but there were so many I just had to stop. That the woman is Israel, and of course the child here is Jesus. The child is Christ. But Israel is often compared to a woman in labor. Isaiah 26, 17, As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains, Thus were we before you, O Lord, Isaiah says in the voice of Israel. And Isaiah 7.14 gives that amazing verse that the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. And because of that, people look and say, okay, a woman is with child, and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Well, the child is Jesus. The woman has to be Mary, right? No. More than Mary. Now, Mary as a part of Israel, sure, I'll give you that much. But the woman here in Revelation 12, as I said earlier, is on earth during the final three and a half years of the tribulation. Can't be Mary. This woman flees for their life from Jerusalem into the wilderness in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. It can't be Mary. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Again, for those who claim the woman must be the church, and by the way, that's a big one among replacement theologians the woman is the church that's who it is well let me remind you that the church didn't give life to Jesus Jesus gave life to the church we come from him he didn't come from us 
Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. We are born again of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He births us and not the other way around. So the woman is not the church. Because the church does not give birth to Jesus. And it was Jesus who said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's an important thing to remember. We don't build Jesus. Jesus builds us. We don't build Jesus' church. He does that. We are part of the structure and the framework and the bricks of this temple that He is building. Our part is to trust Him. To show up. To be part of the labor force as He does the work. I like what our sister Brandy said today earlier. She said, besides, the church is the bride and the bride's not supposed to be pregnant. So, so the woman, Israel, gives birth to the child, Jesus. It says she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And you know why. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth he might devour her child now this is all interesting it's past tense that is it's either at or before the birth of Christ, the birth of the child. Verse 3, which we'll look at in just a second, is descriptive, while verse 4 begins with an ancient event long before it comes to the historical event of 2,000 years ago, the birth of Christ. Let me explain what I mean by this. What we see at the end of verse 4 here is the moment the devil had waited for for all history. Knowing it would come, because the devil is a student of Scripture, knowing God intended to send a seed of woman to save the planet, reading the prophetic word, reading things like Isaiah 7.14, oh, Satan was aware of it. He knew something was up. God was going to do something, and so he's waiting, and he's looking for the time when the Savior child would appear on the planet. And you know what? It happened right under his dragon snout. And he missed it. He missed it completely. Do you realize that? That Satan missed the birth of Christ? Wait about, wait a minute, what about the the slaughter of the innocents? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. Satan completely missed the birth of Christ such that it didn't really land on his radar until roughly two years later when the Magi showed up. Remember, we've talked about this. You've got to fix your manger scenes. If you've got Magi in your manger scenes, you need to put them on the other side of the room so they have two years to get there. Because they were not there at the birth of Jesus. Shepherds, yes. Mary, Joseph, Yes. Perhaps some animals, but not the Magi. We're told in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, 
We'll start in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And I'll tell you who else was troubled. The dragon. Because the dragon realized with the coming of the Magi... (gasps) Messiah's on the planet. I, I would love to see the meeting of demons that night. Who missed this? Why, why did we not know about this? How could this have happened? Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for that's what's been written by the prophet, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Then you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the sign appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and slaughter, I mean worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, there's a sign, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, note that the house, not the manger, not the cave, they're now in a house. They saw the child and the word child there is different than infant. The word child is used for a toddler. So that's how we know that we're probably two years in at this point. From the birth of Jesus, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And we talked about the gifts that they gave. Those anointing gifts, those prophetic gifts, gift for a prophet, gift for a priest, gift for a king. But Satan now, the dragon, realizes he missed it. And so thinks, well, there's still time. Let's go after the child. And so he satanically inspired uh, Herod. Look down in verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. That's Jeremiah 31 verse 15. The prophecy of the weeping in Ramah. Satan so desperately wanted to devour the child, back in Revelation 12 now, to devour the child... That he had Herod cut a 12-mile swath of blood around Jerusalem. That included Bethlehem, it included Ramah, and all of that area. All the male children, two years old and under, where Pharaoh had had them thrown into the Nile. Now Herod has them killed with the sword. It was a horrific bloodbath. No wonder, Revelation 12, 2, she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. There was great pain at the birth of Jesus. Oh, not for Mary. I'm sure she had labor pain. 
But there would have been joy at the birth of Jesus for Mary and Joseph. And then the shepherds, they show up and they tell Mary what they've just experienced. And she's treasuring these things in her heart. And it must have been a very special night for Mary, but not for Israel two years later. For Israel two years later, there was great pain and sorrow and mourning all around Jerusalem. By the way, when infant life is viewed with such cold indifference, all virtue and morality is off the table. And it happened this week in our country. Perhaps you heard about this in the news, Washington Post, on the 25th. All but three Senate Democrats voted against a procedural motion on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, denying it the necessary 60 votes to proceed. The final vote count was 53 in favor, 44 opposed. The bill would have required a health care practitioner to, quote, exercise the same degree of professional skill, care, and diligence to preserve the life and health of a child as he or she would to any other child born alive at the same gestational age. In other words, if, if a health care practitioner, so-called, is performing an abortion, but the abortion goes wrong and the child is born alive... What the bill called for was that live child to be treated as a live baby and all care and all option for life be given to the child and it was voted down in our Senate. It included criminal penalties, a right of civil action for an affected mother, and a mandatory reporting requirement for other health providers. It just makes sense. Bad enough that it's an abortion taking place, but if the child is born alive, that the child be given every opportunity to live. And our Senate said no. You know why? Listen to this. Opponents of the bill argued that it represented an unjustified attack on abortion rights. An attack on the right to kill. What country am I living in? When things like this are taking place, I, I heard just yesterday a Jewish commentator, a conservative commentator, Mark Levin, he made this statement. When a people lose their concern for newborn babies, they lose their humanity. I'll take it a step further. With this kind of cold indifference, it is nothing less than satanic. This is what Satan does. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And by the way, that's why in verse 3 he's called a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Think about that. A great red dragon. Great because he is powerful. Red like the blood that he has spilled across all history. Dragon because he is absolutely monstrous. John eight forty four. Jesus said he was a murderer from the very beginning. So we know who motivated Cain to kill Abel. John 10.10 10 again tells us, Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've said this so many times over the years, but that is all he wants to do with your life and mine. That is Satan's entire intention. Steal, kill, destroy. That's where sin will land us. Steal, kill, destroy. That's all it's about. And he lies and he deceives and he makes us think that sin is okay or this action is alright or we'll just, we'll just slip this one by. No one really has to know about this. Steal, kill, destroy. That's what's going to happen if we choose sin. 
Because that's what the great red dragon does. Note that he has seven heads with seven crowns. What's that all about? We're going to see this more and talk about it quite a bit more when we get to chapter 13. But what this does is it connects or binds Antichrist to the dragon. Because Antichrist is described the exact same way by Daniel and is described this way in Revelation 13. Seven heads with seven crowns. But the point is this. What it does is depict the seven world nations that ruled over Israel. Israel's the mega sign. Israel's the panoramic view that we're looking at here. And there were seven world nations that ruled Israel. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. That's only six. And a final revived Roman Empire. I remain convinced that that is the way this is all going to go down. And it's referred to by Daniel as a fourth beast. Daniel 7, verse 7. Dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Oh, ten horns. This dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Interesting. We're going to see all of these heads and these horns on the beast on Antichrist, describing Antichrist. We'll see this in Revelation chapter 13. Israel cries out in Isaiah 26 verse 13, O Lord our God, other masters besides You have ruled us, but through You alone we confess Your name. So a great red dragon, seven heads with seven crowns, ten horns. Why ten horns? Well, you know this from studying Daniel. And again, we're going to go deeper into this in Revelation 13. But ten horns speaks of a ten-nation confederacy. Ten nations all together spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Daniel 7, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, the ten horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. Three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn, this little horn, possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And if you study on through what Daniel is teaching there in his prophecy, he's talking about Antichrist. So there's this ten nation confederacy and Antichrist comes right up in the middle of this and comes in charge of this. And what appears to happen... And a future event here is that of these ten nations, three are going to be ripped out. Antichrist will rise to power over the rest. And it has been suggested, and I for one still believe it, that the European Union is the foundation. That it is yet the foundation of the revived Roman Empire, the seventh head, the seventh nation to command over Israel. What's interesting, when the European Union first came together, uh, by the way, the European Union, the symbol of the European Union is Europa, a woman riding a beast. That'll make more sense to you when we get to Revelation 17 and we see that description of a woman riding the beast. But the European Union first grew up, and do you know what the nickname was when it first began? They called it the Big Ten. The Big Ten. 
Because the desire was to gather ten nations together in Europe and be a European superpower to counterbalance that of the United States and perhaps Russia or China, other large nations in the world. So it formed, and there were lots of dreams around the European Union, which I know is on very shaky ground right now. Very shaky ground. For you Bible students, you might look at the the Ten Nation Confederacy, you could look at it as feet of iron and clay mixed. You know, there's iron in there, but there's also clay, which means it's not going to hold together, not for long. That, by the way, is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. I was thinking about the European Union this week, and especially looking at these ten, these ten uh, horns. And when we last studied through Revelation, this was back in 2005-2006, and I've, I've already told my fellow shepherds, don't ever let me go that long again without teaching through Revelation. It's been 13 years, which is why I'm taking my time right now, Les. It's been too long. But back in 2005-2006, you know what was going on in the EU? It's pretty impressive. They had just published a threefold list of strategic objectives. They were prosperity, solidarity, security. That's the plan of the European Union. Again, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. At that time, there were a number of nations that were clamoring to get into the EU. Wanted to be part of this European Union. Also at that time, the euro was on a three to four word upward trend against the dollar. There were fears at that time, and Glenn, you may remember this, there were fears at the time that the euro was going to completely overtake the dollar and the dollar was going to go away and the euro would become the new standard in the world. During that same time, the potential of the Confederacy as a great world power was considerable. So we're reading this, we're looking at the the ten uh, horns, and it was easy to say, European Union, man, keep an eye on it. This is what's happening. It's going to happen. Today, it's a very different picture. The European Union, man, it hangs in the balance. The uncertainty of the Brexit vote out of Great Britain. Boy, if if Great Britain fully pulls out, as is the plan, things will come unglued financially for the European Union. There's unrest, horrible unrest. You've been watching it on the news in France and in Hungary especially. We've talked about Emmanuel Macron, who is not very popular at home, because at home, there's, there's fighting in the streets, man. Serious immigration issues are plaguing the European Union trying to have open borders, but it's not working very well. And at the same time, you've got massive Muslim population growth, which is upending the whole thing. You've got a divide in the European Union between Western Europeans and Eastern Europeans. There's conflict there now. And on top of all that, there's a Washington, D.C. policy, policy in the White House today, literally to undermine, some would say to destroy the European Union before it drifts into the waiting hands of Russia. All that just to say this. The European Union is not strong. So much for the ten horns, the ten nation confederacy, right? Wrong. It's more likely now than it was back in 2005 that this could very well be the Ten Horns, that this could be the source of the Ten Nation Confederacy. Why? Because where there's a leadership vacuum, it will be filled. 
And it's highly likely that what the European Union needs to fulfill this, if in fact this is where the prophecy is going, and I for one think it is, is a world leader to stand up and unify it once again. And it can happen. One more dragon note. Not only is he great and red and having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems but you note in verse 4 that his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth and this likely describes that ancient satanic rebellion Isaiah 14 Ezekiel 28 right Ezekiel 28 both describing Satan both describing his ascendancy, his desire to make himself like God, and yet he fell from that position and took with him then a gaggle, a host of angels. And here we're told his tail swept away a third of the stars. Stars in the Hebrew Scriptures can refer to angels. A third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. And it parallels with what Jude told us, verse 6 of his letter, angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. A lot went on with the angels and a lot went on in the fall of Satan. And I want to talk more about that, but I'm going to save most of that for Sunday morning. But that's also what is being talked about here. Look at verse 5. So you've got this dragon, you've got Satan, you've got the woman, and she's about to give birth, and he's just there pouncing, he wants to devour, he wants to kill the child. Well, verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, unquestionably Jesus. And we know because of the coronation psalm. We read this recently. Psalm 2, verse 8. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That's what the child is born to do. He is born to rule. So the child is Jesus. Unto us, Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born. A son will be given to us. To who? To Israel. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham, listen, and to his seed, Drift back a few minutes. Remember I pointed that out? The seed of Abraham? Paul takes it further. He tells us, he does not say the promises were spoken to Abraham and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and Paul writes, and to your seed, that is Christ. That Jesus is the promised child. And so perhaps now we're starting to come to some understanding of this completely irrational anti-Semitism that has plagued the Jewish people. That is, the devil hates the Jew because Messiah is a Jew. And he will stop at nothing to stop Jesus. He tried to stop Jesus the first time, waiting there to kill the child upon his birth at Jesus' first coming, and he failed miserably. Then he tried to kill Jesus for three days, thought he'd done it. But he failed miserably. So now, 
Satan will do, the dragon will do whatever he can to stop the kingdom which has been promised to Israel. And her child, verse 5 continuing, was caught up to God and to His throne. You know, one of the things I've always loved about Jesus is He never asked us to do anything He wasn't willing to do first. He never asked you to make a sacrifice without having gone to the cross. He never asks you to love people without showing us what it looks like to love people. And He never asks us to be raptured without being raptured Himself. Which is exactly what happened. The word caught up there is harpazo. The same word that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that we, are, we will be caught up with them in the clouds. Harpazoed, raptured, whatever word you want to use, we're going to be caught up. Well, Jesus is caught up to God and to His throne. The ascension of Christ was the rapture of Jesus. Acts chapter 9 verse or chapter 1 verse 9 he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going behold two men in white clothing stood beside them and they also said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into the sky this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven And so the ascension of Christ, here the word is, caught up. Jesus raptured. The ascension is huge. It's not just the bookmark at the end of the story. The ascension is proof of the victory of Jesus over Satan. The ascension says so much to to us about who Jesus is. Look at it this way. In the New Testament, the Gospels focus on his life and death primarily the letters of Paul and of Peter and the others focus primarily on his resurrection the revelation is focused on the ascended one Jesus in his ascension Jesus as revealed in chapter 1 this is the ascended Christ this is the glorified Jesus. The revelation is that unveiling of Jesus Christ in all His glory, leading right up to His glorious return. And the devil can't stop that either. Every turn he tries to stop Christ, he can't stop Him. And so the ascension is the absolute proof of the devil's failure and of Christ's victory. Now, notice something here in verses 5 and 6. There are two time spans, two places where time is skipped briefly. At least in the first one, a little further in the second one. But if you look in verse 5, between the word iron and the word and, there's 33 years. Okay? The one who is born, she gives birth to a son who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 33 years go by and her child was caught up. Okay, so there's a little skip there of time, birth of Jesus right up to his ascension. And this is also why I said this is Israel from Joseph to Jesus, because in verse one, we have the dream of Joseph and all the way now down to Jesus going, being born and caught up in verse five. But you can draw a line now between verse five and verse six. It's an important line, and you might even actually draw it. I actually have it drawn in my Bible as a line, an interval. And the interval between verses 5 and 6 take us through the times of the Gentiles right into the midpoint of the tribulation. 
So this is a span of what? 2,000 years? A long span of time? Going from the ascension of Jesus in verse 5, now to verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And that is the final three and a half years of the tribulation. This is when the woman, not Mary, not the church, not some other esoteric persona, this is where the woman Israel is going to flee to a place prepared by God and there be nourished for 1,260 days or 42 months or a time, times and half a time or three and a half years during the Great Tribulation. I just want you to notice one last thing tonight, and it's significant to me. It's a word you might even skip over and not pay attention to. In the midst of these great signs, and in the midst of these epic events, and this horrible war of the dragon against the people Israel, and against Jesus. And there's just one little word here in verse 6, and it caught my attention just this morning. And the word is nourished. Nourished. Trefo. In the, in the Greek, it means to feed, to nurture, to care for. It's the picture of a mother literally feeding a child. And the Lord declares that the woman is going to flee into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. So he's got a place already set aside, already planned for Israel. Next week we'll talk about what that place may be. But he's all set up for her to receive her so that there she would be nourished. While the world is going through the great tribulation, Israel is receiving nourishment, care, and and feeding. This is a great sign. And we in the church need to understand how big this is. And the fact is, the great sign is bigger than Israel. Wait, Rick, you said the the mega sign is Israel. Well, yes, but it signifies something else. Israel signifies something greater than Israel. And the woman in Revelation 12 signifies something far greater, a fact, something we need to know, which is the reason why, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I should love Israel, support Israel, stand for Israel, that I should say for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Israel is a great sign, but it's a sign of something greater, and that is... The love of God. They're a great sign of God's love. That's the whole point. God would choose a people and bless a people, not because of anything they did. Abraham wasn't some amazing brain trust. God just said, Abraham, you're my man. Do as I tell you. And Abraham did. And off he went and God started to love him. And Sarah, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve boys? Have you read about the twelve boys? Talk about the child only a mother could love. And yet God loved them, and loved Israel. Brought Israel back once they were in Egypt, brought them back and into the promised land, and loved them, and blessed them, and said, listen, just be my people, and I will be your God. 
And he poured out love upon love upon love in the face of rebellion upon rebellion upon rebellion. Hey, God nourishes Israel. He offers, even at this point, you would think by now, last three and a half years of this age, man, it's time to just give Israel its comeuppance. For goodness sakes, when are they going to learn? And what does God do? He nourishes. A place prepared where she will be. (laughs) I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping, I don't know if you're getting this, wrapping my brain around the idea that God is nourishing His people Israel. He's a husband to her. This is the husband who won't give up on the wife. This is the husband who says, no matter what you've done to me, I want you back. Even as she continued to sell herself off as a whore to the nations, God has loved Israel, his wife. Just ask the prophet Hosea. In fact, I'll just read this to you. The book of Hosea, chapter 2, will end here. Verse 14. God speaking, He says, listen, listen to the nourishing attitude. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Accor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. I'll tell you this because Cheryl's not here right now so I can, I can talk about her. I always know when Cheryl's in a really good mood because she hums. She'll just hum around the house. And it's one of my favorite things to hear. It just makes me happy. If if Cheryl's humming, I know all is right with the world. I figure I've done something good this day. You know? (laughs) She's humming. I love to hear my wife hum. And the Lord says here, she will sing as in the days of her youth. As in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Now, note this. Go back to verse 14. Did you see what he says? I will allure her and bring her where? Into the wilderness. The wilderness where, Revelation 12 tells us, he has a place prepared for her. And I will speak kindly to her. I'll give her vineyards there. She's going to sing there. Can you imagine? The great tribulation is breaking loose across the world. And Israel is in the place prepared in the wilderness. And they're being nourished. And they're being loved. And they're singing. They're just singing songs. The Jewish dances. I don't know what they're going to be, you know. But they're going to be singing. As in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, it will come about in that day, watch this, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, husband. And you will no longer call me Baali, which means owner. That's where the word the bales come from. Bales, owners. They own you. Those false gods. You're not going to call me Baali, owner. You're going to call me Ishi, that is, husband. For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth. The bale, that could refer right there to the seven nations who have had authority and ownership over Israel. I'm removing that from you. So that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, verse 18, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, that is the land of Israel. 
I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Why? Because then you will know that I am the Lord. There's your sign. Israel is the great sign in so much as Israel reveals to us the love of God. Oh, it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil and they will respond to Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley, a rich, lush valley of growth in Israel even today. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained Compassion, In other words, she didn't deserve it. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Whoa, wait a minute. Who's he talking about there? Gentiles. The Gentiles. Do you get the point? Israel is a great sign that reveals to us the love of God. He pours it out. He proves it. He shows it with Israel so that we, who are not a people, might be called the people of God as well. That's love. And that is huge.